Okay, so it looks like we're live. We're going to go ahead and get started, make our way through. Um, I do have some class announcements at the very end, so when we're done with the recording, just give me a few minutes before you run out of here, because I was just thinking about that before I started this. So, today, Abnormal Psychology, Psych 213, our topic for today is classification, diagnosis, and assessment of, again, abnormal behavior. So this is chapter four in our textbook. You know, we just talked about historical uh, frameworks and contemporary frameworks and what is abnormality. Now, how do we classify or diagnose it, all right? Um, classification really is this process that leads to like this fundamental understanding of the basic principles. So when we talk about classification, we're not gonna try to explain necessarily where it came from. We might, in some cases, we have an idea of where it comes from, but now we're just gonna try to classify it. We're gonna try to understand the behavior. It's more than just labeling, you know, because just to give it a label doesn't give you more. So what's the data behind it? You know, what is the kind of substance? The major aim is to discover what extent there's distinctive patterns. So there's certain patterns. When I say major depression, can I expect a certain pattern to arrive or show itself? It can help with identifying causes, but it doesn't always identify the cause. It can just help with that. It can help with treatments and even preventative measures. And unfortunately, classification really is kind of a medical approach. So that's kind of its origins, you know, to classify, to diagnose. It, same thing with any kind of medical disorder. What is diabetes? What is, you know, um, sleep apnea, whatever it might be. Um, the development of the system of classification, well, what we can do is we can talk about where it came from. And I'm, I could actually jump back a little further. If you guys recall when we talked about historical perspectives, chapter two, I mentioned a guy named Emil Kreplin. Emil Kreplin was famous for the medical model, the biological model at the turn of the century. And he started to diagnose what was called clusters of behaviors. So in some ways, we can say, so he started to label it. Well, yeah, he started to classify. He said that he noticed that there were certain patterns that occurred with certain kinds of symptoms, and then he came up with a diagnosis. So I think he is the father of modern classification. In 1952, the American Psychiatric Association established a model called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Right? So that's a really long title. We call it the DSM, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And in 1952, the first one came out. If you pop up to my office, I actually have a reprint of the first one. So it's kind of cool. If I get a chance, I'll try to remember to bring it to next class. It's incredibly thin, right? So it's just, what are the current diagnoses in abnormal behavior at that time, 1952? The manual was revised in 1968. So take a look at that. It took about 16 years to revise it, to update it. And that 16 years is important. And I'll, I'll share this with you. If you take a look at the next line here, it says the number of mental disorders listed increased by 50%. So here we have, you know, so many diagnoses and the number of diagnoses of classification categories increased by 50%, but there was one category that got removed. 
See, in 1952, homosexuality was considered an abnormal behavior, and the treatment was focused on making people heterosexual. Well, if you know anything about homosexuality, you know that that's, that's, not, that's not how it works. You can't make someone homosexual or heterosexual. They feel that way. They, they are that way from the start. That's, that's what they feel. That's what we know, right? So homosexuality was really debated when it came out in 1952 as being an abnormal behavior. I'm going to tell you that the, the communities, the populations were, were pissed. They said, hey, wait, this isn't a mental illness. A lot of the research from Alfred Kinsey, Masters and Johnson coming out at the time, um, really showed that there's no difference in sexual response. And so it was removed, really by demand of the public. So again, some of this classification happens because professionals are getting together behind the scenes and discussing it. Some of it's influenced by public opinion too. So we gotta be honest with ourselves on that. Notice it says both the DSM-1 and 2 diagnosis were strongly influenced by Freudian theories. Well, Freud just died in 1939. 1952, this comes out. It's 13 years after Freud's death. You think that he didn't still have some power in there? Yeah, he did. There were concerns, however, about the accuracy and consistency. Just because we had a, a label, oh, I hate that term, but I'm going to use it. Just because we had a label doesn't mean that everybody always used it properly. And the agreement above among clinicians for the use of a label was no better than by chance. So there was no reliability that, you know, if you went to see this doctor, they could call you one thing. You went to see another doctor, they could have called you another diagnosis. And you go, you know, so I guess you could doctor shop to get the right one if you wanted. Unlike medical diagnoses, psychiatric labels were maintained by consensus alone. All it took was a couple people to go, yep, I think you got it, and you got it. Because we didn't have any tests. Like, we can't test for schizophrenia. We can interpret it based on background, based on the symptoms you're showing, but there's no real test to say you have it or don't. It's not like you show up positive for TB, right? We, we, we can't do that. We don't, we don't have that kind of technology. Right? And it says, unlike, again, here's the example, homosexuality removed, right, because of a vote. It was a vote by the APA members. They said, should we keep it, should we not? Nah, let's get rid of it, majority. But that vote was influenced by public opinion at the time, too, I think. Now, I'm going to tell you, not all in the public were happy about that either. Because, of course, many people, even today, believe that there's something different about someone who's gay, but of course the research doesn't support that. So, David Rosenhan, 1973, does a really critical challenge of the DSM system. Rosenhan's 1973 studies, and there are two, usually you hear the one but not the second study. Um, he, along with seven colleagues, um, went and called mental health hospitals and they made appointments. Um, during the intake, they were supposed to say they heard a voice saying empty, hollow, or thud. And other than that presenting symptom, everything else was normal. So they presented all the other stuff normal, but they said they heard this voice, right? And they were supposed to answer everything else honestly and behave as usual. So all they did was report the symptom. All were admitted. Seven of the eight were labeled with a diagnosis of schizophrenia because they heard a voice. Once admitted, they never reported hearing the voice again, and they all act normally. 
okay? So here's what's kind of cool, right? Look at this. The length of the hospital stay was 7 to 52 days. They kept one person 52 days who was acting normal and all they ever did was report one symptom. And what's really amazing is none of the doctors or the staff could recognize the eight as being sane, but there were patients at the hospital that came up and go, dude, what are you doing here? You're pretty sane. I'm insane, I know you're, you're not, you're, you're not, you're sane, right? So the patients said there's nothing wrong with them, but the staff and the doctors, because of the label, treated them differently. In fact, what they were supposed to do is take notes. So they were writing notes in their notebooks. The staff and the doctors said it was part of their paranoia. Right, and all they were doing is keeping track so that when they got out, they could write their report. But they saw it as part of their paranoia. So they interpreted these normal individuals in an abnormal way because of a label. That's what David Rosenhan said. And all seven were released, right, with the title Schizophrenia in Remission. Not that schizophrenia wasn't there, in remission. It was there, but now it's gone away. Well, what do you think happened in the psychiatric community when this article came out? And by the way, if you want to search for it, it's called Being Sane in Insane Places. Right? Well, <laughs> of course, they were pissed, right? An area teaching hospital felt their staff would have recognized these pseudo-patients. They said, you know what, can't believe people fell for that. So, what Rosenhan did was he did a second study. He goes, okay, because people were pissed and said, you know, you pulled the wool over our eyes. He said to the teaching hospital, I'll tell you what, over the next six months, I'm going to send you patients, and I want you to identify them and see if you can catch them. And they said, okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We can identify them. Send them to our hospital. We got them. So over the time span, 19 individuals were identified as pseudo-patients at the hospital. Rosenhan never sent any. So 19 people who came in asking for help were seen as essentially fakers because they were looking for fakers. And what David Rosenhan said is labels harm. They change the way we look at people and their behavior. And we should not be using labels. So it's really kind of interesting. And what his conclusion was is that sane could not be di or differentiated from the insane under our current model. Because it's just opinion. And obviously you couldn't tell who was sane and who wasn't. So along comes the DSM-3. It comes out in 1980. So let's do the math. 1962 or 68 to 1980. So 12 years in there in that span, right? Doing the math in my head, yeah, 12. So DSM-3 represented a marked improvement over the earlier two systems. The criteria became more objective, so it was less subjective, more behaviorally based, less theoretically oriented. Um, the categories doubled again. So think about this. So from DSM-1 to DSM-2, there was a 50% increase. And then from DSM-2 to DSM-3, it doubled, right? Largest structural change involved the introduction of these axes. So they came up with what was called the five-axis system. 
to give a more complete picture of a person. And what they called it was the multi-axle diagnosis. So I'm going to show you what that looks like. All right. These are the five axes that were identified in DSM-3. And I'm going to let you know this axle, this multi-axle system was used in DSM-3, DSM-3R, DSM-4, and DSM-4TR. So four different versions of the DSM use this. Axis one, clinical disorders or any conditions that may be the focus of clinical attention. All right, so axis one where, give me a disorder. Give me one. Bipolar. Bipolar, bipolar axis one. Give me another one. Major depression, axis one. Schizophrenia, axis one. Reactive attachment disorder, axis one. These are all conditions that can be the focus of treatment, and I'm going to add this little line to it because I think it helps shape it. They're conditions that can be treated. Now, notice I didn't say cured, but they can be treated. Can you treat schizophrenia? Can you treat oppositional defiant disorder? Can you treat attention deficit disorder? Right? So all conditions that can be treated. Axis 2. Only two categories fall on axis 2. And that is personality disorders and mental retardation. Can you fix or treat mental retardation? Mm -hmm. No. You have to deal with it, right? It's a long-term concern. Someone who's an antisocial. Remember our guy from the mall parking lot? Right? Ran over the elderly woman. Can we fix him or treat him? No. Is that antisocial perspective, that mindset of his, is that something he, we have to cope with? We've got to get him to cope with. Like, okay, you might want to steal this car, but you can't do that. Right? Borderline personality disorder. How about this one? Narcissism. Can we fix narcissism? If someone thinks they're all that in a bag of chippies and they're God's gift to everything, can we fix that? And, you know, in previous recordings, I used this example. I'm going to use it again. Donald Trump. Does Donald Trump think that he is the world's best businessman? That he is better than everybody else? Now he's president, right? So now he really thinks he's better than everybody else. But again, and you can like him or not like him, but he does have some narcissistic tendencies. You, you know, and you can't change those. You've got to cope with them, deal with them. So axis two were long-term issues that had to be dealt with, and axis one and two were primarily where all the psychological disorders went. Are they more permanent? Are they more treatable? Axis three are general medical conditions. So let's say someone's pregnant. Do you think that might be important to know if you're providing treatment or therapy to someone? Do you think that might affect some of the medications or treatments you use? Do you think you should use electroconvulsive shock therapy on a depressed patient who's pregnant? No, 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 probably not a good idea, right? So again, axis three contained all the medical problems and that's important to know because that affects treatment. Axis four, psychosocial and environmental problems or stressors. If someone's unemployed, would that impact treatment? 
right? Because they might not be able to afford treatment. If they have a loss of driver's license, would that affect treatment? Possibly. Uh, marital problems. Educational difficulties. Homelessness. Incarceration. All stressors or issues that could affect treatment. So we list them on axis four. And then axis five is what's called global assessment of functioning. It's a rating scale, zero up to 100. How well is this person functioning? 90 to 100, never has any problems, never loses their cool, walks on water, angels sing when they go by, right? Nobody is ever 90 to 100. How about 80 to 90? Some occasional problems, maybe some difficulties at school, but in general functioning fairly well. 70, some struggles, maybe some arguments in the family that causes some, some challenges for a while, but they're coping okay. 60, really struggling. 50, actively psychotic. Again, you can see. So here's what the doctor would do. The psychiatrist, whoever was doing the diagnosis, would rate you on a scale of 1 to 100. They give you a current, what's called GAF, Global Assessment of Functioning, and then they might have a yearly GAF. How have you functioned throughout the year? So I can track. Are you improving? Are you not improving? Well, this psychiatrist gave you a 70, and this other psychiatrist just saw you today and gave you a 50. Hmm. Sounds like you're getting worse. Psychiatrist at first gave you a 50, and now at the end of treatment, the end of your hospital stay, you're at a 70. Hmm, sounds like you got better. Still subjective, but a little bit better, right? So this is what we used. And the reason why this is there is because imagine you open up somebody's medical chart, their counseling chart. You open it up, and now you have these five, di you know, five axes. And in one sheet, it gives you an overview of all the stuff going on in this person at this time, right? So it was to really look at the whole person, not just the mental health part, but all the other aspects of their existence too, and how that might impact treatment or whatever. Sounds awesome, right? Well, this continued all the way through the three versions, next three versions of DSM. The DSM-3R, R stands for revision, that came out in, in um, 1987, so 1980, DSM-3 came out, 1987, DSM-3R. They didn't revise any categories, they just um, kind of expanded it a little bit, right? They added a few categories, but not really that much. It was a slight revision. Then in 1994, about seven years later, DSM-4 comes out. And in 2000, DSM-4-TR, TR stands for text revision. Again, they revised it, they added some more detail, but they didn't really do any new categories. And then in 2013, 13 years later, DSM-5 finally comes out. And I say finally because it was expected to come out in 2005. And then it didn't happen. And then they said 2010, and then it didn't happen because there's a large debate. They wanted to do a major overhaul again. In fact, some of the categories they wanted to get rid of, like some personality disorders, we have 10 we're gonna talk about later in the semester. They wanted to trim those way down. Because they couldn't come to an agreement, those 10 are still there. 
But like schizophrenia had five different types. Now we only really have the category of schizophrenia. So there were some, some major overhauls in some areas. Some areas were widely accepted and you know, liked. Some areas are not. Autism was broadened and they put Asperger's disorder back under this umbrella of autism where in previous editions of the DSM they had pulled it out because they said it was unique. And now here we are putting it back in. So some people were not happy that they lost their category. Just to let you know. So when DSM-5 came out, what happened? Well, we, guess what? We got rid of that multi-axis structure. And the reason why they got rid of it is they thought that, well, most clinicians didn't really use it. It wasn't really helpful. I kind of question that, but I guess they have, they're the experts and they looked at all the research, so I'm going to trust what they decided. Plus the GAF, that score, that random score, was very subjective. I mean, yeah, we train you how and how to give it a GAF, but that eh, doesn't mean you follow it. So, eh. Disorders formerly on axis one, two, or three were compressed. So if they were medical disorders or they were long-term problems or they were the focus of treatment, didn't matter, we just combined them all together. There was the same number of disorders in DSM-5, so we didn't change the number, we didn't expand it. The categories, however, were reorganized and redefined. So this textbook is based on the DSM-5, and you might hear different terms that you didn't hear before. Spectrum disorders were introduced. Spectrum disorders were more umbrella categories, if you will. So autism spectrum disorder includes all these other more specific disorders that we used to separate out, but now we just throw them all under the same umbrella because they have similar kinds of symptoms and clusters of stuff. And we proposed some new disorders. And some of the new disorders, again, not widely accepted, but we proposed them. Questions about anything so far? All right, zipping along. Um, this remains a categorical um, diagnosis system. Now includes, however, specific dimensional assessments. So while we were getting rid of the GAF, we still needed a way to determine the level of the issue. So we came in with this level one assessment, right? Involves a brief survey, 12 or 13 symptom domains, rated on a five-point scale. So kind of a, a quick and dirty, here's just a quick screening test. Do you maybe have this? And then a level two assessment is way more involved. I'm not just asking you based on these you know, 12 or 13 symptoms. I'm actually diving deeper into your background to try to find more evidence. So additional checklists and rating scales that are more specific to the issue. Like why am I going to give you this long thing on depression if you don't have depression? So the first one's a screening tool just to see if you have it. Now let's go deeper and see how bad it is. Yes? So now there's only two levels of assessment and then that's it? No, and no, and, and five no, 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 we, it's separate than the five axes. Oh. The five axes were a way to list all the problems. What we decided was the first three we're just going to group together and there wasn't a sense for the, the, the next two. So we kind of got rid of that, but how do we determine how long the problem's been there or if you're improving or not? Or how do we determine if you have it? What we did was we set up some check sheets. So major depression, do you have major depression? Here's 13 symptoms, you have so many of them. Okay, you have major depression, but how bad is it? Let's take a deeper look at your life. 
So is that why if you get tested for ADD or AD, I'm sorry, ADHD? Okay. ADHD, and right. they give you that that paper that says like um, rate your feelings that part take for you for this right. on a one to five scale. Right. And then they add it all up and say your number is like 47. That's right. how, so it's so high and that's how they know you're, you're so effective. Well, they have, well, no, what they do is then that strengthens their belief that you have that diagnosis. Let's say there's 12 symptoms of, I'm, I'm just throwing it out here, right? So there's 12 symptoms. You have 10 of the 12. It's a much stronger diagnosis than you only have four of the 12. Right? So the more symptoms you have, the more that you answer that those symptoms seem to be present, the more likelihood you have of it. Now, if you have those symptoms, and you have 10 of 12, for example, now let's dive deeper and do a deeper level of assessment. Let's collect other tests, not just one, but other things to support that diagnosis and to see how bad it is. So the first one's more of a screening test, just to see if you have it or not. Does that help? Yeah. Yeah. Great question, though. And again, this is some of the concern. You know, are we still just labeling, but we're just, what, doing it in a different way? Yeah. Right. And what's the impact of that label? You know, again, Rosenhan's complaint is still there. You call someone, you call someone ADHD, now do you justify all their behavior and allow them an opportunity to act out? I once had a student come to me. Um, they were in a, a kind of a custody battle. And uh, I can't, I, to be honest with you now, I can't remember if it was the male or the female, the, um, the mom or the dad that came to me, but it was one, I think it was the, the dad, came to me, was all concerned. And I said, okay, well, why are you concerned? Because in, in this case, it was his son, right? I'm pretty sure it was dad. Um, he said, my son, you know, my wife, ex-wife, took him to his therapist, and the therapist gave him a card like a little business card, and says, hi, I have ADHD, please forgive me for my behavior. What? And he was supposed to carry that around and then give that to people so that they, uh, they understood when he acted out. And I went, so in other words, he's got a get out of jail free card, like from Monopoly, because I'm acting out, oh, here's my card, don't blame me. Really? So that label. Right now has been integrated into this kid's world that this is who he is. When it's a behavior pattern that may or may not be changeable. I would like that card. Yeah, we would all like that card. I'd like that card too, right? Get out of jail free card. Hey, sorry, sorry, I lost my cool. <laughs> now I'm not sure what the reason behind the card was. I don't know. I wasn't there. But boy, that makes me question. And again, David Rosenham would be just, see, that's what I'm talking about. Drop his hands and walk away. What are some of the categories in the DSM? Well, we're going to kind of go through them. And I'm going to give you some examples of how these diagnostic categories kind of looked in the different versions. So I'm going to kind of skim over these. If you're at home and you're listening to this, you don't really see that. Um, but again, it's just different patterns of what you would see on each page, right? So here are the categories that are in DSM-5. First one is neurodevelopmental disorders, things like intellectual disability. We don't call it mental retardation anymore because the word retardation has been bastardized so much. We call it intellectual disability. Even the American Association for the Mentally Retarded changed their name in 2013. So just to let you know, because again, we want to get away from this 
negative connotation, right? What else is in neurodevelopmental disorders? Things like autism spectrum disorder, um, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, communication disorders. We have schizophrenia spectrum disorders. So things like schizophrenia and delusional disorders, other psychotic symptoms. We have bipolar and related disorders. These are, tend to be mood disorders, right? So again, um, mood disorders with mania. So bipolar one disorder, cyclothymic disorder, cycling mood that's incredibly rapid back and forth. Depressive disorders, things like major depressive disorder, anxiety disorders, obsessive compulsive disorders. That used to be Obsessive compulsive disorder used to be in anxiety disorders. We said it's so unique, we're going to separate it out to its own category. And then we're going to throw trichotillomania in there and kleptomania in there and, and other kind of manias. Trauma and stressor-related disorders, things like PTSD and adjustment disorder. Dissociative disorders, where you disassociate from your experience. Dissociative identity disorder. We used to call it multiple personality disorder, now we call it dissociative identity disorder. Dissociative amnesia, where you lose memory for no physical reason. Somatic symptom and related disorders, things like hypochondriasis, people that believe that they're ill when they're not really ill. Body dysmorphic disorder, we'll talk about that as we go through. Um, that's a disorder where people see imperfections in their body, oftentimes have repeated plastic surgeries and make things worse. Feeding and eating disorders, elimination disorders, things like encapresis or enuresis, uh, going to the bathroom in your clothes, inappropriate places, sleep-wake disorders, sexual dysfunctions, gender dysphoria. We used to call it gender identity disorder. Gender identity disorder was the idea that you believe that you were the wrong gender trapped in the wrong body. You were. Uh, a man trapped in a woman's body or a woman trapped in a man's body, our goal was to get you to either align your thinking with your physical body, which of course met a lot of resistance, or to do a, a gender change operation. In 2013, the DSM said, it's not identity that's the issue, it's people that are upset over their gender. So they're dysphoric, they're down, they're depressed about their gender. So we changed it to gender dysphoria. They know who they are. I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. I know who I am. My identity isn't in question. How do I cope with that? Now I need help. Does that make sense? So that's why it's called gender dysphoria um, now. Um, impulse control disorders, conduct disorders, substance disorders, neurocognitive disorders like dementias, personality disorders, paraphilic disorders like fetishes. Um, other mental disorders like gambling disorder. Gambling disorder doesn't really fit anywhere else, but it is an uncontrolled kind of compulsive behavior. So we, we have this other category where it doesn't clearly fit. Medical, uh, medication-induced movement disorders um, or other uh, adverse effects of medication. So conditions that are exacerbated or made worse by medication that you're on. Tardive dyskinesia is a side effect of some of the psychotropics. We talked about that last class. And then other conditions, things like parent-child relational issues. But again, not really a disorder, but they're issues that are of concern. So this is the DSM-5. Some conditions that were thrown out there, some, some disorders to explore further. In other words, these are not 
the proposed categories, and DSM does this sometimes, they propose a category, they test it to see if it's going to have some staying power. I'll give you an example. One of those disorders was what's called, um, well, we have three eating disorders. See if I can remember them, right? So we've got, um, of course, anorexia, uh, bulimia, and then there's binge eating disorder. It was a proposed category in DSM-4. Binge eating disorder is people who have an uncontrollable relationship with food. They binge, they eat excessively, thousands and thousands of calories in one sitting, but they're not interested in weight loss. With bulimia and anorexia, there's a weight loss component there. But with binge eating, they're concerned only about their eating patterns and how uncontrollable they are, and the weight is a separate issue. So that seemed like a different category. We explored with it, and we like it enough, it's actually in the DSM-5, but here are some ones we're proposing to explore, right? So, actuated psychosis disorder, some symptoms of like schizophrenia, it says at least weekly for the past month, but not sufficient to meet the definition for any particular psychotic disorder. So almost like a kind of a brief, uh, uh, undetermined psychotic uh, uh, response, if you will. Persistent complex bereavement disorder. After the death of a close friend or relative, persistent impairment, distress, or preoccupation with death for 12 months following that death. And it's beyond cultural or society norms. You know, some cultures say you should be in mourning for two years. But this would be someone who's still obsessed even after that cultural norm has passed. Caffeine use disorder. Internet gambling disorder. It seems to be a little different than just gambling disorder itself. Suicidal behavior disorder. Suicide is not in the DSM. It's not a mental health category, but that uncontrollable urge to want to die, is that something problematic? And then non-suicidal self-injury uh, injury disorder. People who just like cutting, who just, they're not trying to kill themselves, but they like to, to you know, harm themselves in some way. No, these are all temporary conditions they're exploring. Oh, so they're thinking of putting them in the DSM? Right, this okay. is what we call a proposed category. Okay. So suicide was never in the DSM. Now, in 2013, we go, let's check this category out. Isn't it still like a mental health thing to be suicidal? It is, it is, but is it a mental health problem? Is I it a diagnosable condition? I definitely feel like it is. I don't, I, don't, I don't know, but it's definitely a mental health problem. Right, but I'm glad you're saying I don't know because they don't know either. So what they're going to do is they're going to put this category, if they find it useful, when they go and revise DSM-5, they will either add it as a category or it will disappear. Right? If binge eating disorder wasn't a valid category, if people didn't find it useful in using that term, then it would never have gotten added. We proposed it, we tried it out, we got rid of it. Does that kind of help? So again, it's, it's one of the things that DSM does, good or bad. Some comparisons. So this is what a diagnosis would look like in DSM-1. So this is psychosis, or uh, this is phobic reaction, phobias, right? So you can see, here's the description. Anxiety of patients becomes detached from specific ideas, objects, situations, right? So if you go ahead and read this, and I'm not going to take the time to read all the way through it, 
it, you can get some kind of Freudian feel about it. Like it's, it's more subjective. It's more a description. There's not really any kind of key features that you can identify. So this was what DSM-1 might look like, 1952. In DSM-2, again, it's still kind of the same thing. Still just a brief description, right? Oh, maybe a little bit more objective if you go and read it, but it's mm, not really that much more objective. Right, and now we call it phobic neuroses. Instead of just phobic, I think the first one was what? Phobic reaction. Now it's phobic neuroses, right? In DSM-3, which came out in 1980, we called it simple phobia. So defining the name, the names kind of slightly change. Notice how this is much more structured, isn't it? A, B, C. A. Persistent, er, uh, persistent irrational fear of, compelling desire to avoid an object or situation, right? B, significant distress and disturbance and recognition of, by the individual that it's excessive or unreasonable. C, it's not due to some other reason. So it's almost like a checklist now, a little bit more objective, trying to move towards something that, again, it's not just subjective, but I can, anyone will end up with the same answer. DSM-4, right? You can see, look, not a, now we don't just have A, B, C, now we have A, B, C, D, E. And we have more specifics, like down here, F, in individuals under the age of 18, the duration has to be at least six months. So now we have duration and age ranges. Again, more objective, more defined. And we still now, instead of simple phobia, we call it specific phobia. Right, DSM-4. And DSM-5, look how much more detail we see here in DSM-5. So again, now we don't just end at F, now we actually have a G in there. And a lot more specific, notice, A, marked fear or anxiety about a specific object or situation. B, phobic object or situation is almost always provokes immediate fear or anxiety. C, phobic object or situation is actively avoided or endured with intense fear or anxiety. So very objective, yes or no, almost yes or no questions. Do they do this? Yes, yes, yes. They do it, then you have specific phobia. Does that kind of make sense? So, yes. all right, say that you're in the older generation. Uh-huh. And you went to the doctor, they diagnosed you with anxiety because they sure. didn't have enough information right. to fully diagnose you what you actually had. Well, back in the day, that might have been the diagnosis they used. So you're diagnosed with anxiety. Later on, they keep going on with the DSM revision, and then your anxiety is no longer anxiety. It's bipolar or schizophrenia. Right. Right. It's Right. So then you're prescribed one type of medicine, but now you have to change your whole entire Well, wouldn't, we wouldn't go, no, we wouldn't go there. So number one, let me just jump back. Maybe you were labeled, um, let's say the nerves. You know, if you talk to the elderly folks, you know, they'll say, oh yeah, you know, I suffered a case of the nerves back when I was 24. And you go, what do you mean the nerves? Well, anxiety, an anxiety attack. Maybe, maybe the anxiety became overwhelming during the Great Depression or something, right? So they had a case of the nerves. So back then we called it the nerves. 
Then we called it anxiety, anxiety reaction. And then we called it anxiety you know, uh, responses. And now we just call it anxiety. Or maybe we call it generalized anxiety. It's going to have some of the same characteristics throughout. Because you're going to still be showing the same symptoms, we've just become more refined in defining it. And while we've changed the title, it's still pretty close. If you're changing from anxiety to schizophrenia, that's a completely different category. Okay. Right? So again, the, I, I would say the treatment would continue to follow, but just become more revised. Okay. Does that help? Yeah. Yeah. I didn't want, like, if you are diagnose one thing and right. then DSM comes out with like 13 revisions and then you're diagnosed with something else that right. completely takes away and now you have a substance abuse disorder. No. That would kind right. of be, that's well, why I was like that's. Well the good example, that the, probably the best example I can give you is multiple personality disorder. Okay. So multiple personality disorder is this idea that you have multiple people inside of you, mm -hmm. right? Personality disorders, if you recall when we talked about the five axes, personality disorders fell on axis two. But multiple personality disorder was never an axis two disorder. It's something that's treatable. It was an axis one disorder. The person was disassociating from their identity. And so it was actually in the category of disassociative disorders, which is axis one. Mm -hmm. But we called it multiple personality disorder, which seemed to go on axis two. So there was a lot of confusion over the name. So now they changed it. And now the title is Dissociative Identity Disorder. You disassociate from your identity. It's a better descriptor of what's happening. So yes, in somebody's chart, they may see you know, previous diagnosis, multiple personality disorder. Current diagnosis, Dissociative Identity Disorder. So it would list all the things historically that you were labeled under. Okay. Right? That would still be listed there. But we know, someone trained in the field would know, okay, this one's the same as this one, it's just a revision. Okay. The problem is this, that you still have people who are older doctors that are still using the older terms. Okay. Like ADHD, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. Back in the day when that was kind of identified, people started talking about ADD, Attention Deficit Disorder. ADD was never a category. It was a subcategory of ADHD, right? In fact, now we say ADHD inattentive type. So it's a specific type. But people still use ADD as a diagnostic term, even though it was never really a good diagnostic term to begin with. So unfortunately, it's the problem with classification systems. We, we don't always follow the labels. And even today, you can still see psychiatrists debate, I think this person has this. No, I think this person has this. And they're both following what they believe to be the criteria, but they're interpreting it differently. So as much as we try to get more and more objective, we still run into roadblocks. Great questions, though. Great questions. Any other questions? All right. So again, you can see the progression a little bit more detail, a little bit more objective in the process. Hopefully that helps. I don't know.
Yes. Um, so at the bottom it says specify if Right. What is, how do you follow that? So that's a very good question. You probably see some numbers up here too, right? The numbers 300.29, um, F40.218, or F40.228. So you have a specific phobia. What's the phobia of? Is it of animals? Well, that's a subcategory. So it's a little bit more refined definition, right? So that's why they say specify. Right? If it's just phobia and it's not really attached to anything, now we have a problem with that. It's got to be attached to something. The idea of specific phobia is you're specifically fe fearful of something. So what is it? Is it animal? Is it natural environment? You're afraid of uh, bridges. You're afraid of rivers. You're afraid of mountains. You're afraid of trees. You're afraid of the ocean. Natural environment. Blood or uh, injection or injury. Are you, you know, fearful of blood? Hematophobia is a, a fear, irrational fear of blood, right? And then are you, is it a situation? In other words, claustrophobia, it's kind of a little bit different. And hopefully those diagnoses give you a little bit better idea of maybe how I might approach it or how I might treat it. Again, for a clinician, it's a little bit more specific. And the numbers have to do with medical diagnostic codes. And Believe it or not, if you can't give me a diagnostic category with a code, insurance isn't going to pay. So that's really being driven more by money. I hate to say that, but it is. If you go into nursing, you'll learn what's called the ICD-10 codes. I think we're up to ICD-11 now. That's the International Classification of Diagnosis, and there are numbers associated with diagnoses. That's what these are kind of based on. Does that help? Does that answer? So they're all going to like have some sort of code. Like some kind of code. Yep. They're all going to have a code. Because if I don't have a code, insurance isn't paying for the therapy. Yeah, it just has to do with coding. You know, think about whenever I'm going and putting it into a computer, do I want to have to type out specific foamy animal type? No. You know, F40.218. Uh, what is that? Well, that's what this is. You know, think about when you go to the family doctor, what they write on their notes. It's all codes. And that's why sometimes the insurance company will say, well, we won't pay for this procedure. And you go to the doctor and you go, well, uh, I thought this was covered. Oh, yeah, let me resubmit. They, they put down the wrong code. They change the code. Now, all of a sudden, your insurance company pays. <laughs> I, I hate to say that. It sounds really nasty of me. But money does speak. And there's, that's one of the complaints of classification systems, that there's just being driven by a desire to justify therapy in some way. What about like in other countries when like, um, like they have like the free health care and stuff? Right. Well, again, those international codes, the ICD-9 codes are international. So they would still like use those they, codes? Yep. They just get it for free. They just, they just do different things. It's just different. I mean, it depends on the country, is whether you get it for free, nationalized health care or whatever. That's a bigger debate. But again, that's where those numbers are coming from. For this class, I don't expect you to memorize the numbers. You're not becoming a clinician. Now, if you're going to be a licensed psychologist someday, oh yeah, you'd have a class specifically on diagnosis, on the coding system, what does it all mean, what's the nuances. Uh, that's way more in-depth than a 200-level course. <laughs> 
what you're going to write on the cheat sheet that, you know, um, F40.218. And then, you know, yeah, no. There is, but keep in mind that, again, think about what the title is, specific phobia. And if you know specific phobia, you can define kind of what, what it is. These general categories, I do think, are helpful in kind of helping us capture our thoughts together. But we have to be careful how we use them. That's what Rosenhan was saying. That we can't use the label and go, oh, well, you're schizophrenic, so you're acting weird. It's part of your schizophrenia. N no. No, schizophrenic is a problem, yes, but that doesn't mean all your behavior is abnormal. Don't misinterpret. Does that make sense? Like the people taking notes. That wasn't paranoia, it was just them taking notes. But it was seen through the lens of their abnormal, so all their behavior is that way. That's the risk. So problems, here's some of the problems, right? Two questions that keep coming up in any classification system. How reliable can they be judged? And how valid are they? So the next couple slides um, really talks about validity and um, about reliability. And so you're going to see a lot of numbers in here. Uh, again, I'm, I'm showing them to you. Your book talks about them. If this was a more advanced class, maybe we get a little deeper. Um, so I'm just going to kind of skim it as we go through. But I have them up here for you to kind of look at. The early versions of the DSM, they didn't really care. They didn't really look at reliability. How reliable were the categories? They just had labels. And that's part of the problem in DSM 1 and 2. In DSM 3, we cared about labels. So the reliability, what do we know? Well, we know in order for a diagnosis to be reliable, different clinicians should end up with the same results. Right? So if I am a clinician and I examine, like Chelsea, right, and I come up with a diagnosis, okay, and Bailey is a clinician, and she examines you independently of me, will she come up with the same diagnosis? Is it reliable? Is using the categories reliable? So it's one of the things that we take a look at. And that is measured through what's called a kappa statistic. Right? Values of 1.0 in a kappa statistic are perfect reliability. So if you remember you know, correlational research and stuff like that, Notice it says the DSM-3, a reliability estimate of 0.70 or higher, was considered good. So if there was like a 70% agreement in clinicians, that's pretty good. Like we can't have perfect. We'd love to have perfect, but you know, if we could get 0.7 on the categories, then we're great. DSM-5 used extensive field trials to evaluate so they went out and they did research to see, are these categories reliable, right? And the most reliable diagnostic categories included mental retardation. Well, think about that. How reliable is it going to be that someone's identified as moderately mentally retarded, for example? Well, hopefully that's a pretty reliable category. Mood disorders, substance use disorders, and schizophrenia, the big ones. You're either addicted or you're not. So those should have high reliability, right? You come see me, Chelsea, I go, yep, you're addicted to cocaine. Bailey sees you and go, no, she's an occasional user. Really? Hopefully we have some consistency there, right? 
The less reliable categories included things like somatoform disorders. Those are those symptom disorders like hypochondriasis. Well, of course, that makes sense it would be weaker. Hypochondriasis is you believing that you have some illness when it's not really there. Well, I might have it, maybe it is there, but I think the other clinician just didn't dig deeper or deep enough, or maybe the information you're giving me is a little bit different than the information you're giving her. So again, the reliability is going to start to waffle a little bit because it is something that's in your head, and so how can I consistently measure that? I can measure how many beers you have. I can't measure hypochondriasis. So, hypochondriasis, factitious disorders, personality disorders. They had less reliability, because I might think someone's narcissistic, and you might go, no, they're just very uh, confident. Okay. Maybe, maybe not. So here are some of the, this is from DSM-3, right? Mental retardation, look, 0.80. We said if it was 0.7 or higher, we were happy, right? Dementias, 0.85. These are the lower ends, right? Substance use disorders, 0.86. Schizophrenia, 0.81. Mood disorders, 0.69. We said 0.70, 0.69 at the low end. That's pretty good. Anxiety disorders, 0.63 to 0.72. Look, somatoform disorders, 50%. You know, think of it as a percentage, right? A 0.54% agreeableness, consistency, if you will, right? Dissociative disorders, a 0 0.80 down to a negative 0 0.003. So that's all the way through zero being not reliable. Dissociative disorders, uh, I talked about that one. Psychosexual disorders, 0.92 to 0.75. Factitious disorders, look, all the way down below zero, or down almost to zero, right? Adjustment disorders, they're pretty consistent. So some you can see pretty strong, some a little weak. Notice it says overall for axis one was right around a 0 0.70. For, for axis two, it was a little weaker than that. Remember, we believed in the axes back then. So, um, we didn't include the reliability stuff when we published DSM-3 because we didn't want people to know how reliable or not reliable we were. But of course, people keep asking the question. An independent study, um, well, this is for four, we didn't really publish the reliability. We didn't look at it. We said, oh, well, we, we proved it in three, we're good. Yeah, well, we need to do it again in four. So they did an independent study of DSM-4 criteria for anxiety and mood disorders in 2001. And they were found above 0 0.70, but dysthymia was 0.22. Dysthymia is Eeyore. Dysthymia means depressed mood for two plus years or more. Not so depressed you're suicidal, but you're just like mopey, like Eeyore. Well, okay, maybe the consistency's a little weak, because I go, well, yeah, you're sad, but I don't think that you're dysthymia. So that's a little bit more subjective. That's why it's a little lower if you see it. So generally, you know, it seemed that it was at least as good. For DSM-5, they lowered the criteria. <laughs> we didn't say 0 0.70 anymore. We said, okay, well, if we can hit 0 0.4 <laughs> to 0.6, we'll be happy. I, that makes me chuckle, 
because instead of getting better, we just kind of weakened the scoring. You know, we the evaluative. Notice it says between the goal was now be, between 0 .40 and 0 .60, with uh, between two point you know point two and point four acceptable, right? Acceptable. But again, how can we then? What do you mean acceptable versus? So when we take a look at it, right, that's some of the stuff that we did. We kind of lowered it. Now, they're still exploring that. We can also look at validity. So just because something's reliable doesn't mean it's valid. So you and I both score Chelsea. I'll just say that you and I both evaluate Chelsea. And we both were reliable in our diagnosis. We both say that she suffers from something. But are we valid with the label? In other words, is she really suffering from that? If we say she's suffering from depression and we both come up with the same diagnosis, is she truly suffering from depression or could it be something else and we're just mislabeling it? But we're consistently mislabeling it. Yeah, it could be, right? So we have to be careful of that. So this is diagnostic validity. If the diagnosis shows construct validity, then the separations between the different categories should be obvious. So in other words, each category should be unique. There shouldn't be overlap. I shouldn't get things mixed up. Evidence should be available to support what belongs inside the category as well as what doesn't. And does it have predictive validity? Can I predict? Is it valid? If I score you high on a depressive score, is that a valid high score? It does it predict that that's what you may have and how you might act? So again, these are all kind of statistical, well, well, analyses, tests that we do to make sure that we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. There's general agreement that DSM-5 categories, although far from perfect, make valid distinctions. And that's one of the reasons why they got rid of Asperger's and they pulled it under autism spectrum. It was very difficult to determine some of the differences between the nuances of autism, so we just say they're one category. It's the way to get away from it. It's not helpful to decide the differences, so they must all be one. Just variations on the same theme. Um, so again, it's one of the things to kind of keep in mind, right? says those distinctions can be meaningful in a selection of treatment and projecting the course of many disorders. And remember that validity presupposes, if a category is valid, we presuppose, we believe that its reliability is good. But that's not necessarily one and the same thing. You could have a valid category that's not reliable. You could have a, reliability, a reliable category that's not valid. But we assume we make certain assumptions. The DSM series, right, is a product of the medical profession. So it really relies on that kind of same perspective that all mental disorders are a physical illness. Um, but to keep in mind that diagnoses are not illnesses. If I identify you as pedophilic disorder, where you have uncontrollable urges um, for sexual um, activity with prepubescent kids, is that, is that a disease? No, it's not a disease, but we, because it's based on this medical model, we kind of look at it like that, but it's not really an appropriate way to look at it, right? 
And notice, it says, at present, there are no medical or biological tests that can confirm or verify the vast proportion of these diagnoses. There is no test. So categorization is, you know, has some challenges. Categorization has some limits. But we still use it. And we use it because it's the only way can, we can try to communicate you know, people's behavior to one another, at least in a structured manner as possible. So even with its limitations, it's still better than just randomly trying to identify things. At least it gives us a guide, a, some guidelines. Right? It might not be perfect, but they're better than nothing. So that's really where we're at. Now, how do we collect this information for diagnosis? Well, here are some of the steps we can go through. And this, the rest of the PowerPoint is going to focus on this stuff. So number one, I could do an interview. I could observe the person's behavior. I could do some psychological testing. I could do some neurological testing and check out their brain function or sort of physical functioning. So again, I can do physiological tests or mental tests. The interview. We could have a structured interview. We could have an unstructured interview. A structured interview, I have specific questions. I ask you, you come in, and I specifically ask these questions of, of everyone that comes in. It's more formalized, more structured. Or I might have a more open kind of interview, where I come in and I say, tell me what's going on with you. What's the problem? So it's unstructured. You could tell me anything. And the goals of a diagnostic interview include establishing some kind of rapport, some kind of connection with the person, some kind of comfortableness with them. Decreasing anxiety about the process. Explain, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions about your background, about your behavior, about what your current problems are, and we're going to try to identify what condition you might be suffering from. We try to collect some basic details and we try to be accurate in the self-report. So in other words, someone tells me they have these problems, well, can I verify that by asking some, some family members? Again, so we try to be accurate in our collection. It relies heavily on self-report and that's one of the challenges of interviews. Remember Rosenhand had his colleagues go in and say they heard a, a, a word, they heard a voice. That was self-report. They could tell you anything that may or may not be. Maybe I just don't want to, maybe it's getting winter time and I'm living in the streets and I'm going to get cold. I know I'm not going to have any heat or any protection. And so I show up to the hospital and I just give you any kind of symptoms so that you admit me and give me housing. Does this happen? So again, it's self-report. That's one of the challenges. The very circumstances can affect what a patient tells the interviewer. Is the interviewer skilled in you know, extracting the right information? Um, maybe the person doesn't trust. Now, I'm interviewing a paranoid schizophrenic, someone who's paranoid, and they're not in touch with reality. Are they going to tell me what I need to know as a clinician to have the proper diagnosis? Maybe, maybe not. And then what's the immediate circumstance? You know, what is the purpose of the interview right now? Why is the person here? Are they truly suffering or is there some other motive? I'm looking to get out of work. I need a break. You might go a break in a mental health facility. Think about that. You go and you stay somewhere for a month 
and you don't have to feed yourself and worry about bills. Or Now, when you get out, all that stuff's still waiting for you. But boy, you can escape for a while. So maybe there's a motivation. Just saying. Some cultural factors can influence this process too. You know, what if I'm a male, you're a female, and we're going to talk about some kind of sexual dysfunction that might make you uncomfortable? What if we're from different ethnic backgrounds or cultures? What if we were raised differently? I might have biases, you may have biases. Those all influence this interview process, right? So that's one of the things that we say. And there's some psychological problems that are highly specific to certain cultures. And so in their culture, this may be a norm. And in my culture, it might be abnormal or maybe just the opposite. In their culture, it's abnormal. In my culture, I go, well, I don't see anything wrong with that. So I've got to, I've got to shelf that. I've got to pay attention to culture, too. Observation. Go and observe people in their natural habitat. Right? And here's the deal. Should you use just observation alone? What do you think? Should you use just interviewing alone? The more data that you have, the more information you can collect, the better the diagnosis can be. The more solid, the more hopefully accurate you are in identifying the, the true problem, right? So again, I could do observations during the interview or maybe I have other people do it. I can do what's, a men what's called a mental status exam. That makes sure that right now you're associated with people, place, and thing. You know like what time of the year it is. You know what day it is. You know who you are and why you're here. You know who the president is. You know some basic information. Are you oriented? We do this with uh, the elderly to make sure that they're not suffering from some kind of dementia. Right? Are you oriented to person, place, and thing? We can do some psychological tests. Things like the MMPI. We can do some intelligence tests, some personality tests, personality inventories, some psychoneurological testing, and then we compare your results to other people, to the norms. So we can kind of take a look at that. And then the rest of this PowerPoint really just looks at some of these different tests, like intelligence tests, things like the Stanford Binet or the Wexler Intelligence Scale, right? To, to determine your approximate intellectual functioning ability. Now, it's not perfect. A test score alone doesn't give you a great idea. Maybe you commit an IQ of 80, which is the low range of an IQ. Maybe you're just bad at test taking. Maybe you're more like a 90 or a 95, but you came in or that was a bad day or whatever, right? Or maybe you're a high 80. In other words, you're very, you're very, you have a lot of street smarts for someone with an IQ of 80. Takes you longer to learn, but you're pretty, pretty sharp out in the real world. You can still function and get by. Does it make sense? So again, there's some variations. Score alone doesn't tell you enough. I can do personality tests, I can do projective tests or more objective testing. Projective tests were tests that Freud used and basically I would show you some ambiguous stimuli and I'd have you tell me what you saw. And my belief is that whatever was in your head was projected into your response. Right, so that's a projective test. Personality inventory is more yes-no questions. That's more objective, if you will. And I think, I was trying to see if I had, so here we go, right? Um, 
The problem with, person, with projective personality tests is it's all subjective and interpretive. So here's an example, the Rorschach test developed in 1911. And all it is is an inkblot. And so you show this person this inkblot, like here's this inkblot, and then you say, describe what you see. And you might say, ah, oh, it looks like a face, looks like a mask. You might say, it looks like Satan with the horns. And so again, your response is gonna give me some insight into your thinking. But it's subjective because again, it's my interpretation of your response. Now hopefully I've trained you. In order to grade the Rorschach test in training, you have to look at 300 plus previously graded Rorschachs in order to get a feel for what the themes are and what the patterns are. So you get better with time, hopefully if you're well trained. This is the thematic apperception task, uh, the 1935. You see this picture, this kid looking at his violin with music underneath, and then you're supposed to tell a story. Well, he's looking at the music, he's He's praying he's going to have a good show today, you know, he's, you know, or maybe he's looking at the music, he can't understand it, he's feeling overwhelmed. So again, what your story is, it gives me insight into how you're thinking about the world. And again, a projective test score by itself shouldn't be enough for a diagnosis. You need to include that with interview and observation and other means. So I know we're at the end of our class, but let me just kind of quickly just do a quick scan on the rest of this, right? So I can make sure I give you all the major pointers. When we get back together next class, I want you to ask me any questions about the end of this that we didn't get to. Does that sound fair? So again, those are projective tests. I can use like more objective tests. The Minnesota Multifacet Personality Inventory came out in 1943. It's 567 true-false questions. So you just true-false, true-false. Then what I do is I scan it, and I calculate the numbers, and I compare your scores with norms. So one of the scales is the depressive scale. Maybe you respond to the test higher than the norms. So that gives me an indication that maybe you see the world through depressed eyes. Doesn't mean you're depressed. Just means you answered the test similar to someone who's depressed. Let's ask some more questions. Let's dive deeper. So again, you can take a look at this. The MMPI actually has validity scores built in. It's a lie scale and an F scale and a defensiveness scale so that you can see if the person's maybe faking good or faking bad to gain something. Or they're inconsistent in their responses. They're just randomly answering anything. We have some scales that allow us to take a look at that, that possibility. And then these are the scales the MMPI looks at. Hypochondriasis, depression, hysteria, psychopathic deviant, which is antisocial, masculinity, femininity, paranoia, paraasthenia, which is uh, feeling tense, you know, obsessive, phobic, schizophrenia, mania, and social introversion or extroversion. So just different parts of people's personality. We compare your score with the norms and then we determine Again, whether we think you might be suffering from that or not. Again, one of the things that we have to be careful of is interpretation even with any testing that we do. And then finally, the last bit of information we can collect is things like brain scans. I can do CAT scans, PET scans. Do I see something happening? Now, what I'm going to tell you is when you go in to see a therapist, they don't just test you every method possible. That's costly. 
an MMRI or an fMRI is very expensive. Doing a CAT scan, PET scan, very expensive. There has to be a justified reason for it. And then it's based on what the test can produce as to which test I would pick. So I'm looking for a structural issue. I'm looking for a functional issue. Different tests look at different things, right? So again, that's some of the stuff we see. CAT scans use x-rays, then slices of the brain to look for tumors or other structural abnormalities, right? MRIs make images like this. They look for energy of vibrating hydrogen molecules in the brain via a strong magnetic field. So again, to try to get an image of the brain. This is a PET scan. It looks for activity, right? What we do is we take a, a we look at how your body takes in glucose. We actually put a radioactive kind of dye in your system, and then we, we look for it to show up how much activity is happening, which is really, I mean, you go, wow, fascinating stuff. Again, costly. So it better be justified as to why you're doing it, always. And the bottom line is, what do we know about imagery? Well, again, we know that while some of these things are helpful, Currently, there's you know, no verifying way. Just because you have a diagnosis doesn't mean that everyone's going to have the same structural abnormalities or the same functional things. Again, there's no clearly defined norms for brain functioning. So we can do all this stuff and we go, oh, I found a tumor. Okay, but how is that tumor impacting your behavior versus someone else's? I'm still guessing. Even with all the technology, there's still an interpretive process where I have to guess. Does that kind of make sense? So again, we've got to be cautious. And the last slide is this one, right? So there's some videos here I want you to kind of take a look at outside of class. They give you a better idea of, again, some history, some overview, and some proper ways to diagnose mental illness. But I'm going to tell you, there is, even with all the classification methods we have, all the testing procedures we have, there's still no perfect diagnosis or perfect way to classify. This is the best we have with the flaws and without. Any questions about Chapter 4? All right, thanks for listening at home.